Welcome to the Wealth Wisdom Podcast. I'm your host, John Lawson, Senior Wealth Advisor with Asante Capital Management and co-founder of Sauna Family Office. Today, we have with us Bob Lawrence of Veer Business Advisors. I first met Bob when I was looking into taking a course out of the US, which he had already done, and we've stayed in touch ever since. The course and one of Bob's areas of expertise is exit readiness planning for business owners. He and his partners don't just stop there, they're also very skilled at finding you the right buyer and walking you through the process of selling. Bob is a CPA, CA, and CBV. That's a Chartered Business Valuator. And he's the founder of Veer Business Advisors. Bob and I did a Wealth Wisdom live webinar a couple months ago, and I thought it really made sense to do a podcast so that the reach of this information was greater and available for business owners to view at their own convenience. Today, we wanted to cover the five steps you must follow in order to successfully lay the groundwork for an easier and more effective sale of your business. So let's jump right into it. Welcome, Bob, and thank you so much for joining us again. Let's talk about your five steps to being ready to sell your business. What would number one be? Well, number one is talking about objectives. And no matter what engagement we're doing, whether we're helping sell a business, whether we're doing a management buyout, or whether it's just planning for the eventual, uh, you know, enhancement of value and, and sellability of the business, we always start with objectives. Your personal objectives, family objectives, business objectives. Um, there's a couple of important reasons we start with objectives. First of all, um, it kind of creates a roadmap, the North Star for, you know, where we're going. For example, some business owners, um, what's really important to them is uh, maximizing the check. They want the biggest check possible. They're not too worried about anything else. They want the most money, and and that's fine. I mean, that's uh, uh, that's a pretty good objective. You know, a lot of golfers doing the live tour right now, and uh, you know that's what they yeah. want. They want the biggest check possible. But there's other business owners who um, maybe a more important factor is the ongoing business opportunities for their employees. The, the protecting the legacy of their business. So if you give them the choice of you can sell to a, a competitor who's going to immediately roll your business into theirs, uh, the name will go away. Maybe some of your executives will lose their, their jobs due to redundancy, but that's the big way to get the biggest check. They'll choose that they would rather sell to someone else who's going to keep the business alive, protect the legacy, and continue to grow the business the way they're going. Sometimes business owners have particular staff or, or, or managers that they want to have um, the opportunities to participate in ownership. Sometimes there's family in the business that they want to have those opportunities. So sometimes a business owner wants to sell but still stick around for a while and have a meaningful evolution part of the business. We've got some business owners who, before the sale closed, they'd already sold their house and you know bought something else somewhere else. So uh, you know they, their idea of a transition period is 15 days. So some business owners are prepared to help finance the deal where some want all their money on closing. Um, just to give you a quick example, uh, we've got a deal right now that's closing in about three weeks where the, the purchaser offered the opportunity for the, uh, for the business owner to uh, participate in the growth of the business over time. So some of their proceeds would be based upon the performance of the business over the next three years. 
And there was a, quite an opportunity for the business owner to earn a, a pretty good earnout if the business continued to go at the, at the same trajectory it was going right now. And we thought they'd be pretty excited about that. It would be a nice little uh, upside for them. But from their perspective, they saw that as leaving them financially, emotionally, and intellectually uh, committed to the business for longer than they wanted. They were happy to stay for six months and full-time. They were happy to have another six months of part-time. But after that year, they didn't want to be thinking about the business. They didn't want to be worried about its results, even though um, that was an upside for them. So they were prepared to take a smaller amount on a fixed basis as opposed to something that gave them the opportunity to participate in earnings later, just purely based on their objectives. So that's sort of the number one is on the objectives is, is it gives us a direction, gives us a roadmap. If we're not achieving their objectives, we're not doing our job. Yeah. And then that, that also gives you something when you run into issues later on uh, down the road, because there's always something that crops up. I think you refer to it as a North Star. It's a way to go back and say, well, have your objectives changed then? Because this is what you said. This is this was supposed to be a driving force. And I, I know in my experience, sometimes objectives have changed because uh, it, it's a process. It's a growth uh, going through this Um but other times, it's a reality check, and the, uh, the 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 people involved go right. Thanks for that reminder. That that is what's most important to us. So really helps out, doesn't it? Yeah, and it, that's exactly. And um, we often see, as you said, there's almost always some kind of a curveball or something unexpected that happens in a process. And by going back and saying, okay, well, let's set aside that for a second. Let's go back. Remember when we started this process, we spent two hours, you know, with your spouse and, you know, your kids even joined us and we talked about your objectives. And, and here's what we agreed your objectives were. So has anything changed? You think your objectives have changed? And one thing that commonly changes um, as, you know, you and I are both, you know, still young and vibrant, but, you know, other people are older. They might have said, oh, yeah, I'm prepared to stay involved in the business for another five to 10 years. I still feel young and alive in this business. But a lot of things can change along the way. Um, sometimes it's having, you know, people we know have health issues or uh, uh, or just, you know, having gone through COVID. I mean, a lot of people's objectives changed. And so now they think, well, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd rather have my life now. I'd like, to re I'd like to have more flexibility in my retirement than when, I, than when we talked a year ago. So we update these objectives, say, okay, well, now that we have your new objectives, let's evaluate these new circumstances now. So does this fit into your objectives now? Does it not fit into your objectives now? And that can tell us how we move forward. Everything should be evaluated in terms of objectives. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the other comment that I'll make is that it's funny how, how we each think and we've got our mindset and we often think everybody thinks like this, but in my experience, there is no two situations that are ever exactly the same. There's certain variations uh, of it, but everybody has their own uh, path kind of mapped out, or maybe they don't have the, uh, the, the path actually mapped out. Uh, matter of fact, lots of times that's what people can't do, but they they do have those objectives so it's it's um it's one of the things i find fascinating about uh this business so i know i can stay on objectives uh, forever and ever because i think that's the absolute foundation of it but uh in the hopes of keeping this down under a five hour uh <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> podcast. Uh, nope, just kidding, everybody. <laughs> it'll, yeah. be, it'll be yeah. less. The second step uh, in in your process has to be figuring out some of that financial side, right? Yeah, and so there's two sides to that. And um, the first part, uh, what we call we call it solving for X, and that's when you know someone sits down with you, of course, as their financial advisor, and takes a look at you know what their plans are for you know the not only the rest of their life, but you know what they wanted you know maybe share with their children and uh, and what do they need for that you know and what what kind of resources do they need to live the kind of lifestyle they want to live. So they can meet with their financial advisor and, and maybe, you know, they can determine that they need, they need to net $3 million from their business in order to fund the kind of lifestyle that they want to live. Now, if their business is worth $4 million, then that's great news. They've got, you know, some flexibility, provide some flexibility on timing and the kind of deal. But if, if they need $3 million and their business is worth $2.5 million right now, then, you know, we've got a bit of a problem. And so that means either they're going to need to um, do something to enhance the value of their business between now and the time they sell, or they're going to have to change their objectives a little bit. Maybe, you know, instead of uh, three weeks in Maui, it's going to be two weeks in Maui and, uh, you know, one week in South Surrey. So they may have to change their objectives or they may need to do something else. They may need to, you know, be involved in doing some consulting afterwards or, or, or something that's going to sort of make those numbers work. So yeah. it's really important. And, you know, for, for us, what's really critical for us and our business is we're typically dealing with a lot of businesses that are in that sort of three, four million dollar value range. Now, if you're selling your business for $20 million, if you've been successful enough that you've got your $20 million business, whether you sell that business for 18 million or 22 million probably isn't going to change your lifestyle. Um, it's, you know, there's some pride and there's a scoreboard and, um, you know, if you're planning to pay off all your employees mortgages after the sale, well, maybe that's, you know, that's, you know, relevant, but, but when you're selling in that three to $4 million range, that's a pretty critical number, whether it's three or whether it's two and a half or whether it's four on how that impacts your retirement, especially a lot of business owners haven't set aside as much. A lot of their value is tied up in their business. So um, so what that number is, is very critical. So, so the first step is that financial needs assessment, but then the, the, and in rolling, segueing right into, you know, step three is, you know, what's the business worth now? Because those are the numbers we need to compare. So by looking at the, uh, determine sort of the baseline value of the business now, we can determine whether, you know, whether those needs can be met, uh, by the business now, or whether there's some work to do. Yeah, there's, uh, so I'll just go back to solving for X uh, a little bit, and then we'll move on to the valuation side. But uh, um, solving for X, and there's I've had some experience where uh, clients did uh, look at selling a business. Um, they had what they thought was a brilliant offer. Um, they had not, uh, it, it, it was unsolicited offer and, uh, um, this happens a lot. And I think people can probably relate to it. You, your advisors are telling you, Hey, get prepared, get prepared, get prepared. And you're saying, no, I'm not really ready yet. So, or I've got other things that are more important And all of a sudden an unsolicited offer comes along and it's like, wow, this is a lot of money. 
this, I think we're going to do this. And uh, in, in this case, it was in the range of just over 10 million. But when, when we uh, finally got down uh, and did the planning, it actually was not enough for the kind of lifestyle that they wanted to uh, continue on with. And so it was really important for them to do this. And then, as you said, it's, there is never a hard stop. Then it's just a matter of choices. Do you want to change that lifestyle uh, that you are looking to have afterwards? Or do you want to continue to work on that business and, and push forward? Or there's all sorts of other uh, options that are in there. So completely agree with that. Well, I think further to what you say, when that, um, that offer, that unsolicited offer comes in, if you haven't already done the work, sometimes um, by the time you have then done the work, um, maybe that offer has cooled a little bit or um, so you want to be ready. And we talk about having sort of your business exit ready all the time. Um, yeah. you know, obviously, the positive side of that is maybe some great opportunity comes along and you want to be ready to, to, to jump at that offer. But, but there's also sort of unplanned exits that happen. And uh, whether that, you know, we talk about the four Ds, uh, death, disability, divorce, and dysfunction. Um, you know, if any one of those four things happens, um, it's good to have your business sort of exit ready so that you can take advantage. You don't want to be starting your process of uh, exit readiness and value enhancement at the time that maybe um, there's there's been a, a you know sickness for the key owner or uh, or some kind of dysfunction that that makes it more difficult to plan. So so yeah. so having the, the business exit ready so when that letter rolls in from the private equity company that wants to buy your business for $18 million comes in, um, then you're sort of ready to go. You don't have to, um, you know, have, you know, can strike while the iron's hot. That's right. No scrambling, but uh, your, uh, the, the other point to this, and I, I always try and hammer this home is um, a, a business that is ready to sell is a great business. Uh, so it's, it's, uh, so much easier to run because you have all the pieces in place. Uh, you've got the right team. You've got the right uh, a product uh, or product enhancement. You've got uh, all the right tools in place. And it's less a, a, a business that's ready to sell uh, should be a business that runs without the owner uh, being a key, key part in it and, uh, what freedom that gives. And, and I know that you have experience with this too. Um, but often, uh, when you get, a, a, an owner to that point, they, they start to think, huh, do I really need to sell this? This is, this is a pretty sweet gig. Um, yeah, we've even had clients who've engaged us to do our sort of veer assessment, um, with, with actually no plans to sell. Um, they recognize exactly what you said, that uh, um, an exit-ready business is, there's, there's a lot of uh, parallels between the steps to make it, to, to enhance value and sellability, and just, you know, good um, business management. So, so there's, a, there's a large construction company, you probably recognize their name, their signs are all over the place. Um, they engaged us about six years ago, and then they have us come in and update our plan uh, every three years, update our assessment. Um, they have no plans to sell right now, but they actually have a committee whose job it is, is to, to do our actions, to complete our, the actions that we've identified. And then they bring us back in three years later and say, okay, let's go through it all again. And let's see how we've done on those actions. And what are our new actions? 
And, and, and really, it's just to make the business be more efficient and more successful. They have no plans to sell. Obviously, if someone came along with a big check, they might take it, but, um, but, but they see it as good management, just yeah. as you said. So, so let's go uh, a little deeper on the valuation side. What, what are the value factors? Why are they relevant? Okay, well, we have 54 value factors, so let's go one by one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, we're not, that, we're not gonna do the five hour podcast today. What we try to do is we look at what, what the business is worth to the most likely buyer of that business. And you know, we'll talk about exit options in a, in a few minutes, but, but the value and who will buy your business are intrins intrinsically connected. To give you an example, we sold a, uh, a, a small chain of pet food stores on Vancouver Island last year. Well, that business would have been worth something to maybe the employees. The employees might have been interested in buying it and continuing to uh, sort of follow the same journey as the, as the business owner. There might have been some entrepreneurs, and there were entrepreneurs who were interested in just buying it and stepping into the shoes of the existing owner and continuing to grow it. But there were also some existing pet food chains that saw the dominant position that company had in their market. And if they wanted to grow in that market, they're really the only way that they could do it was to, uh, was to buy this company. And they had an offensive and a defensive reason to do it because offensive, they wanted to be in that market, they wanted to grow. And defensive, they didn't want their competitor to be in that market and grow. So as we look at that business, the value to the employees is one thing. The value to that entrepreneur stepping into the shoes is another thing. But the value to those strategic buyers was much higher than it was to the others. So we look at sort of that valuation 101. Most businesses are valued as a multiple of sort of adjusted earnings. Um, why adjusted? I mean, we try to uh, take out the impact of you know, tax planning they might have done, maybe some um, um, unusual items that have occurred. Maybe they did a tax reorganization and there's an extra $20,000 of legal fees in there one year. So we try to normalize those to come up with sort of what's the normalized earnings. And then it'll be a multiple. And that multiple is very much connected to both risk and reward. So what's the risk that the business is not going to continue on the same trajectory once the owner's gone. So, um, and so for that purpose, we're always looking at um, trying to make the owner redundant in the business, strengthen the management team, strengthen um, documentation of processes and procedures, anything we can do to make the business less reliant on the owner so that the buyer sees less risk in that ownership transition. So I, I just wanted to reiterate one of your points there, and that is um, making the business uh, uh, a, a more saleable and safer and uh, had an experience with a client where they bought a business and over 50% of the revenue was one client. Uh, and they knew that risk going in. The seller saw it as a positive uh, because they said, look at, I've got this marquee client, but in, in the end, the seller came to realize that, okay, yes, but there is a risk here. And so the purchase was done on a lower mu multiple, uh, and the, uh, the client has since done a very good job at diversifying that was pre COVID. And then, uh, 
and through uh, through COVID, the marquee buyer uh, client um, did everything they could to slash costs, and that was uh, uh, one of the things they did was actually just go to the the, the cheapest supplier, uh, not the best supplier and those are business decisions but they went to the cheapest and that client was lost but thankfully the client had done a really good job diversifying and broadening the clientele base so uh, yes it's an impact but uh, it wasn't as devastating as it would have been had the original owner still been there and not uh, foreseen that uh, and now the uh, uh, the business it's it's not for sale but uh, uh, valuation done multiple much higher um, it's they've done a great job at, uh, at building this uh, business out to be a, a saleable business that actually isn't for sale. Well, that's a great point. Customer concentration is probably one of the top priorities for a buyer in terms of looking at those value factors um, for the very reason you say that. Um, we've seen quite a bit, the example you gave, we, we had one almost identical where it was a, a machine shop business and they just found it, it was just easy to keep selling more and more and more to one customer. And so they would price out some of their other customers in order to provide more capacity for this one big customer and just was easy to do bigger orders for them. So by the time we came to sell the business, about 60% of their revenue was attributed to that one customer. Well, Sometimes there's a familiarity that happens between customer and supplier. And sometimes that customer might be thinking, well, you know, we should really look around, but we really like this company. We like what they're doing. We wouldn't want to do that to John and his business. So, but when that transition happens, when that ownership transition happens, that's when their sort of loyalty to that person goes away. And they think, well, you know, maybe now's the time for us to go out and check out some other suppliers. So uh, so that customer diversification, a question we're asked almost every time by proposed buyers when we're talking about a business, is there any customer who's more than 5% of their sales? And, um, and if you've got, if you have a business and there's nobody who's more than 5%, then that's, you're, you're going to get a great big check mark in that box. Now that doesn't mean to say that if you have someone more than 5%, it's not saleable but it means that there's gonna be more analysis done on that relationship, on how reliant that customer is on you know, your business, what their options are. It's, it's a very critical, critical value factor, that customer concentration. Yeah. All right, so we've really covered in there, uh, although we didn't delineate uh, much between the two, the uh, valuation and who is your buyer, because as you said, they're intrinsically uh, uh, part of one another. Uh, so then it comes back uh, to your fifth point and your fifth step. And this really relates back to what's your number uh, in my mind. Uh, and it's the tax factor. Yeah. And, 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 and a number of other things that come off, come off that big number. So, <clears throat> you know, you, you're really happy. You've got your, uh, um, your letter of intent is there. You're going to get $6 million for your shares. And then you find out that, uh, wait a minute, you're not eligible for the capital gains exemption that you thought you might be eligible for. So now you're going to pay tax on, you know, 25% tax on your whole $6 million. And then wait a minute, I have to, that was that value, that $6 million was based upon you being uh, debt-free. And uh, 
wait a minute, you mean I got to repay that million and a half dollars I owe to BDC out of proceeds? So um, suddenly you find your, you know, your check at the end of the day is, you know, a million bucks. We always say it's not important what, what you sell for, it's um, how much you keep. Yes. So, uh, so obviously the tax side is a big part of that. And, and as, as I referred to, you know, most, most business owners are familiar, there's sort of about $930,000 of capital gains exemption. So tax-free capital gain on sales of a qualifying small business. One of the problems is that the tax advice many business owners got 20, 30 years ago was um, set up a holding company and the holding company is going to own your operating company. And that way, as you make money, you just keep sending dividends tax-free up to your holding company. And that holding company becomes your super RSP and you just do all your investments and buy your property and everything in your holding company. And then, you know, everything, everything's fine. The problem with that scenario is that this capital gains exemption is only available to individuals. So that means the individual shareholders would have to sell the holding company. And if the holding company has a bunch of other assets in it, then it might not be eligible for this capital gains exemption. Yeah, I would go back, Bob, to uh, the tenant that we said, uh, always have your business prepared for sale. And that includes the tax planning side. It's just good business. And uh, I know a lot of us kind of cringe at, the, at, the, uh, at that tax stuff and uh, it can cost you some money. But uh, in the end, it makes your business much more functional. And uh, as, as always, good advice makes you money. It, uh, and, uh, and on the flip side, it's maybe splitting hairs, but it saves you money. So really what we've covered then, Bob, the steps being, let's get your objectives down. Uh, then we're solving for X. Uh, what's the uh, valuation factors? Uh, wh which ones are relevant? And that's intrinsically uh, put together with who your buyer is. Uh, and then it comes down to the tax factor and uh, make sure that you're not ignoring that side. Uh, it all boils down to planning, but the, uh, the bonus step, uh, what, what's actually number six? Number six is actually identifying what the action plan is now. Now that you've identified all these factors, um, what do you need to do in the next one, two, three, four years in order to enhance the value and sellability of your business? And that all is driven by all these other steps. So if you've identified that you have a, a customer concentration issue, and that is probably going to impact your multiple, and it's going to drive away possible buyers, then now one of your actions is going to be to work to diversify your customer base. So what can you do to um, add additional customers? There's even some businesses, if they're two, three, four years away, um, they may do an acquisition a small acquisition that helps attend to some of the um, um, to some of the value factors that need to be addressed. Um, if your uh, potential buyer might be a private equity company, um, private equity companies like to have a very strong management team. It's really important that you have a strong management team. They don't want to manage your business. They want to sort of be board of directors, stewardship type role. Um, so if you have, if the owner is very much uh, driving the strategy of the business and the management of the business, then one of the action plans is going to be to strengthen your management team so that that private equity company sees that it's going to be in good hands after you go. 
Those are great points, uh, Bob, and good summary of it. So obviously, if somebody's listened through this whole thing, or even if you've just caught a part of it, um, what you're realizing is how important the planning is. And don't, uh, to Bob's last point there, don't just uh, make a list and say, oh, that's good. I should do these things. You actually have to put this into action. And I know that is in everything that we do. Uh, unless you actually take your first step forward, nothing's going to happen. And so if I can encourage business owners to do one thing, it is to engage some help, somebody who will guide you. And um, whether it's Bob or whether it's somebody else, I just happen to have the pleasure of working with Bob and knowing him for some time and the success that he gets for his clients. And so if you would like to reach out uh, and talk to Bob, uh, there's never any pressure, but Bob, what's the best way of uh, people reaching you? Well, I think um, I'd appreciate that, John. We will have a first meeting with anybody. We always say that uh, only two possible outcomes to a meeting. One is that, you know, there's a good fit and we think we can add value to their situation and, and be a good match. And the other is that they'll know a little bit more about where they are and what the process could be going forward and, and, and have a bit better of an idea. We've never had anybody go away from that first meeting after an hour and, and regret the time that, you know, feel that it was a waste of time. Well said and very much respect that. Thanks, Bob. So time's up. Bob, thanks so much for taking the time to share with uh, our viewers uh, your knowledge and, and what it is that you guys do. It's always a pleasure to work with you. Thanks, John. You've got very lucky listeners to your podcast who get to hear all these great experts. That's it for this episode of the Wealth Wisdom Podcast. Ultimately, our goal is to educate and engage you, our audience. If you have any topics that you would like us to dive deeper into, please let us know. If you could take a moment to post a review, it would be very much appreciated. And if you would like to have access to our other videos, podcasts, or articles we have done, visit us at saunafamilyoffice.com. And for those of you who don't know the origin of the name Sauna Family Office, it stems from the meaning of a saunté which is Swahili for thank you. However, the most commonly spoken phrase in Swahili regarding Asante is Asante Sana, which means thank you very much. This name represents our gratitude towards all the families and business owners who have chosen our team as their trusted advisory council. Until next time, Asante Sana. Hi, I'm Trevor Beggs from Sana Family Office, and thanks for listening to John Lawson and the Wealth Wisdom Podcast. Here are the necessary disclosures. Asante Capital Management is a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada. This material is provided for general information and is subject to change without notice. Every effort has been made to compile this material from reliable sources. However, no warranty can be made as to its accuracy or completeness. Before acting on any of the above, please make sure to see a professional advisor for individual financial advice based on your personal circumstances. The opinions expressed here are not necessarily those of Asante Capital Management. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next time on the Wealth Wisdom Podcast.